0: I think, yes, businesses do explode, but only because that money comes at the right pivotal moment. And interestingly, though, from a perspective of which is easier, I would always go private investment. I would never, ever do a crowdfund again. It was the hardest thing I've ever done.
1: Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community, a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Successes in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce. If you're new to the show, we'll be discussing with current owner entrepreneurs, their failures, mistakes, passion, and continued persistence in the face of business adversity. Not all entrepreneurs have completed their vision just yet. Some are just starting out. I want to give you a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. What does it take to become successful, to grow a brand, or to start a business? join me to find out from those that are currently doing just that. On this show, I'm joined by a woman whose career is so diverse we could have an entire series about her business life alone. Awarded an OBE in 2015 in the Queen's New Year's Honours List for services to small businesses, women in business, and young people, as well as being a published author on business strategy, the director general of the Direct Selling Association UK, the ex-editor-in-chief of Women in Business magazine, and if that's not enough, the commercial opportunity director at the Royal Mail, Susanna Schofield also, believe it or not, has an entrepreneurial side, running multiple businesses and risking it all only recently to bring her new venture to life. Clear your diaries and get your notepads out, as this will be interesting. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for joining. You have had one hell of a career. You've worked at the Royal Mail for nearly two decades. You've started your own business. You've been an editor in chief. You're now a director general. Talk to me. Talk to me about how all of that happened.
0: Well, Oliver, all you've made me do there is feel even older now. This is terrible, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely terrible. Nearly two decades at Royal Mail. So I- I'd love to say that where I've ended up has been an absolutely strategic path of organisation, but it's not. If I'm honest, I think anybody with any shit running through their blood just ends up where they see the opportunities taking them. I think I was probably, if I'm honest, a very round peg in a square hole at Royal Mail. I absolutely loved my time there but um, anyone who's ever worked there or worked for a large corporate organization will utterly know that most of them have the turning circle of the QE2 (laughs) so decisions are not made quickly they have to go through legislation regulation and never more than when you are when I first joined Royal Mail it was a, a compliant organization we were a monopoly so our compliance regulation was unprecedented with that we had our major share stakeholder who Was the government, which changed every four years, if not more frequently. And on top of that, we had a myriad of unions in there. So when it came to getting things over the line, the one thing the Royal Mail taught me was patience absolute research and and insight you know you you can't make a decision in one division and not think about the effects it has across an entire organization because it it just doesn't work and I think that was one of the most interesting things for me is and the probably the biggest learning curve when starting up because I think entrepreneurship is amazing if you just you can just react, you can have an idea and you think this is great. But if you don't build business on facts and on actual business research, it, it's set to utterly, utterly fail. And um, and I've had a few impulse moments where I've ended up picking up the pieces afterwards, thinking probably should have looked into that a bit more closely rather than just going from the hip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what what sort of impulse moments uh, were they? Because obviously, having left I suppose the Royal Mail after after eighteen years, you then became as editor in chief for Women in Business magazine, and again that was a smaller. End- But nevertheless still slightly larger than, than I suppose a startup or indeed a business which you may found out of your bedroom. Talk to me about that transition and journey.
0: Well, this was strange. And and I think probably actually one of my biggest mistakes, if I'm honest, I I felt passionate about, you know, the women's women's side of things. So I have mixed views on this. I was very lucky to be awarded an OBE by the Queen. I got it for helping, you know, young people and women in business. And one of the things I feel passionate about and and, and stand by, and it's not to everybody's taste, but I feel very strongly it's the right person for the right job. I don't care what sex, what colour, what creed, what belief. I don't care any of that. As long as you want to metaphorically put your running shoes on and go running and do a job to the best of your ability. Now, I know lots of women would love to see quotas and they'd love to see different things done differently. But for me, I've never felt held back as a woman. I've never, you know, 20 years at Royal Mail where 80 odd percent when I joined were men, because given the nature of delivering post at midnight, it doesn't suit a, a, you know, a woman. And it doesn't, and it never will. And I think we have to recognise some of that. But the last five years at Royal Mail, I set up subsidiaries for them. Part of their innovation campaign was to almost look for another revenue stream. You know, if letters were doing so well, Parcels were growing with all of the online shopping, but actually they wanted a third revenue stream. So I set up several businesses from them from concept through to the end, making, if I'm if I may be so arrogant say, a lot of money for them. So when I got my standard annual first class stamps for my Christmas bonus, I thought, do you know what? I get stamps. What else is there, Oliver? What what else is there? No. Well, <laughs> there is that, but I
1: would not have <laughs> thought they'd give you stamps as a Christmas bonus. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think
0: it. it was 25 first class stamps in a Christmas letter signed by the CEO and the chairman at the time. So um, so I remember opening it up and thinking, do you know what? I'm making quite a lot of money for them on a regular basis. Yeah. And it was my fifth setup of business for them. And I thought, I might go and do this on my own. But I knew I knew I wanted to grow. I'd already started paddling. I wrote my book, Mind the Gap.
1: I was going to say, did you come up with that name when you were on the tube by any chance?
0: Well, it was always the gap between internal perception and external reality. And I touched earlier, literally on that moment of research, is you can believe one thing about your business but if you don't listen to your end user and your consumer you're doomed from the start because it's what they want that you have to deliver and so much and especially in large corporations you know the smaller entrepreneur probably comes face to face with their customer but actually when you get to a corporation where you have a management suite of 800 2,000 people let alone all those on the ground you know there were quarter of a million people when I joined Royal working for them and that dropped to about 180,000 they were the largest employer in in, uh, in the UK. So actually, when I first started there, and we were a monopoly, and you know, and co- with that comes super arrogance. If you want to post a letter, that's great, you have to use us. We don't really care about your feedback, we're it. And to think about that now, that's such a different mindset from customer experience and the customer journey. And my time with Royal Mail, I will never forget, and it was absolutely exceptional. They were an amazing and still are an incredible organization to work for. But that arrogance of, you know, we are the monopoly, we can do it, was quite different. So when I think I started think I'd set off on my own I'd already written the book which was mind the gap and that was as I say the gap between perception and reality so it's creating successful business strategy but built on facts ask your employees what they think ask your customers what they think and essentially measure the gap between the two and that will either give you a huge opportunity or you will suddenly notice that most of your employees think one thing and most of your customers think something else which gives you a major risk so it's really really just a fact-based SWOT if I'm honest but I've seen so many any corporations stand in a room and draw the big graph and you've got people around that, oh, that's a strength. No, that's a weakness. Mm-hmm. That's an opportunity. And most of those people, Oliver, haven't seen a customer for the best part of 15 years. Yes. They've started joining the ivory tower. They're up at the top uh, and they've forgotten what it's like on the ground. So actually do some research, embed it all mm-hmm. and then understand yep. You know what, what you're building your business on. So having written the book, I then thought, you know what? I'd already started to dabble a little bit with the customer research. And then a couple of companies had said to me, Do you want to come and do this again? Because actually we found it really valuable. And I thought... Oh, what set off actually is a project. I wrote the book when I was pregnant just because I was bored and couldn't drink. It probably says more about me than it should. What a thing to yeah, do. <laughs> what, yeah. what shall I do? I'll write a book. Why not? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I can't yeah, read the album. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that that terrible, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is inspiring. Though. I mean, it's phenomenal in as much as you've written this book. You now speak publicly about it. And obviously, you can find it on, on Amazon. And, and I suppose Amazon, there's a level of irony there. And as much as Royal Mail deliver packages, deliver parcels, Amazon have hit them pretty damn hard. And I suppose at the time that you left, was it on the horizon? with Amazon kind of becoming a a sort of entity to be scared of? Or did they still think uh, they've they've not got anything on us?
0: It's a strange one. I mean, I remember when when the sales guy who went to speak to Amazon first came in to our sales meeting and he said, oh, there's this new startup company and they're going to sell books online. And I believe, Oliver, quote me, the words out of my mouth were, that won't catch on.
1: No way. (laughs) (laughs) What do I know?
0: And obviously went on to be a huge, if not uh, you know, the biggest customer of Roma. But it's interesting because... When we privatised and we were selling shares, I remember having a debate at the board saying, what if Amazon buy a lot of them? What if actually they take so much of raw Mail that they could start to control and network and start to actually deliver? And I remember everybody laughing, saying they never want to get into the delivery sector. That's not what they're about. They're absolutely fundamentally a distribution channel. And I always remember that story about Coca-Cola who said they, Coca-Cola don't consider themselves as manufacturing liquid. They consider themselves as a distribution business because it doesn't matter what they manufacture. If they can't Get it to their customers in a timely, professional manner. Their business fails, and I, I just, I remember sitting there thinking, are they friend or are they foe? And then during Christmas, they would, you know, they would give us a huge volume. We would be ill prepared for it. Our delivery services would suffer just because they couldn't predict their spikes, and they have such a quick delivery turnaround. And I mean, I'm an avid Amazon customer. And it, it doesn't cease to amaze me that bar actually something falling out of the sky above my head when I deliver yeah. it. I don't think they'll ever get it any quicker. You know, they are. It is
1: baffling. Isn't it is. Um, from
0: crazy. our offices if you order ink cartridges I've got them that afternoon I mean that is just amazing as I say bar it falling from a drone above my head when I press send it's um, it's never going to get quicker so it's been very interesting to watch that develop. And I think even more interesting from being outside of the raw Mail now, because I think the brand is incredible. What they do is amazing. But actually, when it comes to some returns and being able to access some of the system, it's not as slick as it could be. And I think from an observation outside, the opportunities, you know, for the likes of uh, TNT, DHL and Amazon now are, are vast. And they're going to have to keep, you know, their share price is saying the same. They're going to have to keep nimble and move a bit faster. And I I think the blockbuster of today
1: is uh, is whether that's true or not. Do you think a, a large conglomerate or corporation such as the Royal Mail who who have kind of you know steeped in history they've been around a long time can they can they pivot can they put new tech can they become more startup I suppose as opposed to what Amazon and DHL and companies like that can do in as much as they started small and they grew and they were almost private to a certain extent, which the Royal Mail isn't. I mean, can they be as agile as a as a startup ever or are they doomed?
0: They can never be as agile as a startup, no, simply because the size and the task is just too great. So there are certain obligations due to holding the Universal Delivery Service that they have to meet. There are certain criteria because of the unions that they have to meet. There are certain things that will never enable them to be able to move quickly and make speedy decisions but with that comes a huge amount of added gravitas I used to as a sales force we used to have to go and make meetings and when you said I need to come and speak to you I'm from the Royal Mail people would listen to you they would talk to you they would it just opened the door simply because actually they needed you and even when competition opened up we are still a very trusted party so when someone had something urgent to get through that's how they'd send it and I think that half of the joy of what Royal Mail does is it touches everybody everybody has a letterbox so whether you're working in your corporate organisation or actually you're just at home waiting for the documents for your house sale to come through, you physically need that service. And I think that gives the emotion that not many brands have. And I, I think as you move into an entrepreneurship or you move into doing something different, it's how do I make my brand a absolutely sit in someone's life 100%, not just think of me at work, not just think of me at fun. How do I embed into the almost the infrastructure and fabric of an individual so it becomes an extension of who they are? And that, that's when you start to gain real traction.
1: It's like the Simon Cynics start with why to a certain extent, isn't it? I mean, you know, Royal Mail, yes, fundamentally they deliver letters, but actually why do you use them? Well, because you need something to get to somewhere and actually it makes a difference to your life. You've got it on your door. Oh, and by the way, yeah, we can deliver letters uh, through your letterbox sort of thing and it's like I suppose uh, Apple as well you know a thousand songs in your pocket that sounds lovely You know, that is the start with why when you're starting a business you need to look at that and I suppose looking at pitch DMM and Dice Metrics your your businesses now and you've gone through funding what was your why when you started those?
0: So Dice Matrix was the why definitely about what on earth are people doing spending money on employee engagement surveys and customer surveys and never comparing and contrasting the two and in my mind you know I remember being in different organisations especially when we did the startup it was like let's ask people what they think who work for us and we get the results back and we'd have a little read and we go yeah lovely super pop that in a drawer and do absolutely nothing with it then we'll ask our customers what they think and we'd read that and we go right excellent pop that in a drawer and never do it. But actually, if you ask the two together, the empowerment that gives you as an organisation, the, the understanding of where those gaps are and what's going wrong is, is just phenomenal. When we first set up Dice Matrix, I worked with a company to benchmark whether we got it correctly or not. And they sold the widgets that come in your IKEA packs. So, you know, when you buy a piece of furniture, you get a little pack of all of those screws and bits and pieces. I mean, I'm sure for the sake of advertising, there are other flat pack companies available, but but it was they, they pack for IKEA. And they used to have to send them out and they couldn't work they had loads and loads of inquiries and at the beginning of the month all inquiries converted but at the end of the month none of the inquiries converted now we uncovered that for them and said you only get 50 50 because it goes 10 days into the month and all of a sudden every inquiry after that isn't converting why so we looked at all of the data we went back into the uh, employees and what was happening was the employees hated sending out the sample packs so they just gathered them all in a corner and over the course of they then sent them out at the beginning of the month so if you made an inquiry near that time it was great because you've got your sample pack and then you could make your order but when we went back to the customers and said why didn't you place your order they said well when the sample finally arrived it was brilliant but unfortunately it was too late and we'd already had to go somewhere else but unless you compare and contrast what customers are saying and employees are saying you miss that now that is such a simple tactical move what you do is you get a request for sample and every day by policy it goes out that day change their business they went from converting 32% to memory serves about 87% and they put they put so much money on the bottom line all by doing this so that filled me with joy because i think if you can go into a business and help them grow help them achieve their targets and understand the tiny minutiae that's not going right but like a watch you know one cog stops to turn and it doesn't matter how beautiful the rest of the engineering is the whole thing starts to fall down so being able to go in so simply with just an employee survey a customer survey piece it together really cheaply and in power so that that was my why for dice matrix and and that sort of led into looking at could we do that with people's minds? So you know, Oliver, from us talking before, it's well-being and people's mental health for me has been an issue that's been poorly underlooked for a very long time. And I think mm-hmm. sadly, given what's happened recently and the lockdown, it, it will only get worse as people become more isolated. Yeah. So we wanted to look, could we take that? almost the ability of measuring and put it into people. So could we ask people how they thought they were doing and then ask their boss, their manager, their, you know, all the touch points. And could we look at saying, actually, if someone thinks they're doing really, really well, but everybody else doesn't, what, what are the areas they need help with assistance with where's that breaking down and if you do that on a regular interval someone's absolutely flying for three quarters and then one quarter isn't and everyone thinks they're not maybe that's a flag for HR to check that person's okay mm-hmm. are they still happy in their job have they had a change of management but if you've got a big organization it allows you to measure very carefully across that and then from there we went into sport because I started to become aware I and mean, I've always been passionate about sport I, I love love watching I'm one of those strange women that will come home and put the football or the boxing on it's you know I, I, I don't watch any reality TV at all. It's, it's music or, or sport. That's that's it. Um so, music
1: or sport. I didn't know that about music. What sort of music?
0: Oh I l- love a bit of music. Lo- any sorts. Do you? I have a very eclectic mix of t- taste of it. Yeah, but I, I couldn't live without listening to music every day. There's not a day that passes in my life where I don't either run to it, work out to it, drive to it.
1: You've got such an amazing drive though to to be able to guess up and to be able to run, to be able to do all these sort of fitness regimes, as well as run a business and raise funding for a startup. And I think you raised to the tune of 153,282, if my mind serves me correctly, which was I'm gonna take 4, your word 000, for it. About 150 ish. <laughs> yeah, roughly. But it was it was you know, it was it was over the target that you were trying to raise. You beg, borrowed and stole to a certain extent from so many people to get this idea off the ground. You sold your Rolex Watch, you sold your Range Rover, you invested all of this into into your vision. This was after you'd left such a corporate and secure world. There's a massive risk there. Why did you do it? Do you know, and
0: when I look back at that, it actually makes me feel sick just hearing you say it. I think because we'd done a bit with Dice Matrix and I kind of had the feel, then we'd moved into the sports world because I loved it. And then I just had this feeling that, there's no positive sports platform where fans can actually gather and have a say in their own community. So the the, the, whole, the whole bit around, you know, yes, you can talk on Twitter and Twitter is incredible. Instagram's amazing. There's lots of platforms where everybody goes, but there's no safe environment where actually a Spurs fan could get on and talk to other Spurs fans and in a forum that's not managed by the club, but where someone from Chelsea is not going to come and go, well, you would say that because you're a Spurs fan. So we wanted to create communities within football, but we also wanted to to give the fans a voice. So football fans in the UK love their teams. It is tribal. It is, an, and they are fanatical fans. It is absolute passion and they love their team. But weirdly, they have an incredibly inherent distrust to most of the board and the company that runs their football club. So talking to fans, there was this big feeling that, well, no one listens to us. We are effectively the money. And actually, nothing has been clearer than since lockdown that when football isn't played in front of a live crowd, that 12th man is genuinely missing. The players miss it. The that everything, the whole that you know, even spectators at home miss the crowd from being there. It just doesn't feel the same. But we wanted to give those fans a collective voice. And then we thought, actually, if that's the why fans want a collective voice, the then is how do you monetize it? How do you make sure that you can become a business without being disrespectful to those views and those fans? So essentially, we we culminate all of that. You know, people can pick their starting eleven, have their say, vote who they think is going to be man of the match, all those sorts of things. We also have a huge bit of cutting edge technology where there's video two way. So someone from the football club can record a message and then our guys can record a message back and then we can stream that live so that people can have a debate within their own club, but through a two way platform. And strangely, Oliver, actually, we struggled to get that off the ground a little bit at the beginning. But it's a terrible thing to say. But if anything's come out of of having to work in isolation, it's that the world is very used to Zoom now. So this platform has absolutely rocketed. No one worries what they look like or whether they get frozen on a on a on a two way video
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, it must be a great thing to certainly. I know, not a great thing, that's probably the wrong term, but it must have assisted the growth of, of, of your business pretty well during lockdown simply because of I suppose the development in tech and the fact that people do want to communicate through video more than ever before
0: I think it was the weirdest thing and I think when like you say I begged borrow stole put everything on the line because I just I genuinely believed we had something we could create so that was three years ago and let me tell you 150,000 doesn't get you very far so we had to work nimbly we had to work very leanly we had some great support from people who came in and helped because they believed in the bigger vision and the bigger picture but at that time I remember standing in front of the the, you know that we did it through cedars and I I think I did it for two reasons not only for the money I did it for the discipline in how you set your business up so when you crowdfund there is infrastructure you have to put in place as reporting you have to be you know the FCA have to get involved because you've taken money and I I think for me that rigor that put wrapped around the business and it was always potentially built to be sold was always potentially built to be able to be flipped out so that I thought if I could put that infrastructure from the get-go around it we're in a good place moving forward but standing there I, I can honestly say, I, I said to all of the potential investors, we have contingency planned this within an inch of its life. Not in my wildest dreams on the 13th of March 2020 did I think I would hear the resounding sounds of Premier League football is (laughs) cancelled.
1: What's your contingency for that?
0: Absolutely and I just remember I was live on air with Lembit, I do a BBC radio show with Lembit OP. absolutely I was live on air with him when they announced it and we both just read it and he looked at me and the mics went off and I won't use the language I use now because we're, we're live on air as it were and I just put my head in my hands and I said I defy anybody who had in all the dark room, lock away you know off sites, war rooms that people have got, did anybody say a national pandemic or a global pandemic and all live sport being cancelled and this was at a time where we just moved the app from football into British touring cars, we'd received an exclusive three rights, three year deal right, we'd invested lots of money into building that and that was due to go live on the 28th of March same same month, month. so quite literally we had all our eggs in one basket I employed two extra people who both started at beginning of March and God bless them have only ever spent a day and a half in the <laughs> office which is amazing really isn't it exactly. I mean we fonded over Instagram and Zoom but I'm genuinely yet to spend any time with these two poor guys um, because yeah we literally had to go home and, and do everything virtually so we've done incredibly well to get through this I think from the entrepreneurial moment I came out of that radio show with Lembit and I, we went straight over the road and we bought a bottle of wine and I get the train to Tunbridge Wells so legitimately bought a bottle of wine sat in there and just just got drunk because there was that really moment of I don't I actually don't know what to do. Do we close it down? Do we walk away? Do we? I'm sort of glad I didn't know the magnitude because I think every entrepreneur sees a glass half full. And There's always room for more champagne, always, but it's always half oh, it's full. Champagne, yeah, yeah, it? of course. <laughs> you're going to imagine a glass, Oliver. What? Which, which other glass yeah, do you well, imagine? Is it orange juice or
1: no, water, no, no. but no, we'll go for you, champagne. You can see
0: a theory yeah. theme here, can't you? Yeah, with the glass. <laughs> one. So no, say so, it's always yeah. glass half full. There's room for more, but it's always glass half full. And I, I think if I'd known then that I'd be sitting here a, a week before you know end of August beginning of September thinking gosh what we we are still effectively you know there's no live crowds there there's no I, I don't I don't think I could have seen that glass half full I think I would have genuinely thought that's it but I just I think anybody who runs a business has a protectorate that says right what now and and it's all those cheesy lines isn't it you know if not me now who when if I'm not going to be accountable for it who's going to do it it's you you have to just Think about what we're going to do. So I went into the office the next day and I said, right, we're obviously going to have to close all of this down. This is what we're going to do. We're going to play every single game virtually. We're going to play the Euros virtually. If that doesn't go ahead, because it was uh, starting to talk about whether that would be, we're going to set ourselves up a hundred percent that we are going to run tournaments. We're going to get people on their home games, on their Xboxes, on their Playstations. And we are going to put football to people at home. If it doesn't get played, we obviously lost all our income because, you know, we make a lot of it from the data we produce and to giving our, our outputs to media companies. Um, so all of that dried up. So we just thought if we can just keep ourselves going long enough, um, at the same time I I actually flew back from Singapore at the beginning of February so everyone was looking at me very suspiciously because I was out there over Chinese yeah yeah, yeah. exactly you are the super spreader this is you (laughs) Um, so honestly I'm not I promise I'm not I feel very well Um, but I'd actually been out there securing our next set of investments so rather than doing a crowd fund we got to a stage where we'd proved the business we absolutely knew we were making revenue we were very hungry to go out and get more sports to join the BTCC um, and, and, and roll it out and I thought do you know what now's the time it's it's go big or go home as they say we either get huge investment stick it in and do so so I went to get 1.5 million I went out alone I went out with uh, one of the brokers who'd helped meet the company a couple of Japanese investors a couple of Chinese investors and two from Singapore um, so these six guys made up with a huge cultural difference in everything had to be translated so had the most amazing moment where I met my female translator and she said to me you're going to need to speak very succinctly and very slowly and I just laughed and she said what's so funny i said oh spend 10 minutes with me and we'll yeah, realize well, this yes. is not going to be easy <laughs> I was going
1: to say, have you met no, exactly. yes.
0: so so yeah the one thing i'm not is calm and i'm definitely not slow so um so everything that said had to be translated obviously from me to them and back again so the meetings take a long time but we came away from that with the money
1: live sports was paused slightly in hindsight because of the pandemic if you were the investor would you have pulled the money
0: do you know i think that's a good question and i think i probably would at the time nobody knew what was going to happen and i think Because live sport had stopped, I might have said, actually, do you know what? Well, let's just see where this goes. Let's see. I think to some extent, to our advantage, nobody knew how bad or long this was going to be. But also our investment was coming from a country that suffers incredibly from SARS and from this, you know, wearing a face mask is norm when you get ill out there that I I think they probably understood the risk slightly greater than we did at the time. So we had this real moment we'd employed two more people. We were really going great guns. We'd secured the British Touring Car Championships to be, you know, exclusively the predictor app for that for that sport we were just signing some deals to get into boxing we had the premier league and the championship going and we were as i say we were go big or go home so that moment when you think oh god is this it and and there's no planning for this there's no entrepreneur in the world who would say there. I saw this coming I saw, and, and you know and it's it's a strange because for some people this was a huge opportunity and we can't shy away from that you know some there were some great entrepreneurial people out there who did some amazing things for people and created some incredible tech and software but for us it was catastrophic and I just thought do you know what what do we do and I, I think the only reason we kept the investment and we did keep the investment but the only reason was because we reacted so quickly with such passion so I've since spoken to our investors and actually what we did was we went as I said we went off we played everything virtually we created our own games. We created tournaments where people could win prizes, and we just kept our users engaged with what we do and who we are. And I think because we did that, and we didn't do that to keep the money. We did that to keep the business alive. And I didn't furlough anybody. We just kept pushing through. We worked so hard and very different. And my team had to really, you know, pull their socks up and and kind of do things that they weren't used to doing. Work in a way we weren't used to working. Over virtual sports is very different from real sports. There was this real sense of camaraderie of if we can make this work and we can keep people engaged when sports starts again, we'll be back up and running. And I remember the investor call and I remember thinking, well thanks ever so much. Here's the, here's the metaphorical P45 and the don't call us, we'll call you. You know, we'll just put this on hold. And you, you think, God, months we've been soliciting this money. You know, we've been, we've gone round, we found the right partner, we found the people that want to invest. And they just said, listen, in, in times of trouble, you've demonstrated as a business what you would do contingency planning. And as a result of that, we're in.
1: That's amazing. What was your burn rate then, I suppose, during that time? Had you not been given the, the, the money? And I suppose at that point, you hadn't been given the money. How long did you have left in the bank
0: we wouldn't still be here now
1: really yeah and the most interesting thing here is the fact that you've successfully now done two rounds of funding one being through crowdfunding on cedars and and the second obviously being privately with uh, one and a half million quid i've had a lot of people ask through this podcast you know how do you go about raising money and actually when you get the money a lot of businesses just seem to explode Is it as easy as getting the money, and then your business takes off? And what do you need to put in place to be able to successfully generate a good funding?
0: I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg there, and it's interesting. Once you get the money, you explode, and and yes, of course, because you've you've suddenly got some money to be able to spend. But actually, you've only got that money because you've already proved your business. So nobody is going to give you money when you're not already showing some growth. You know, maybe as a small startup with an opportunity. But when you get that second tranche of money, it's because somebody's looked over the fence and said you've proved your business. We can see trajectory. We can see where this is going to go. Now we're going to invest in you. And that's why it explodes. It's not luck. It's not because of the money, because if somebody just had a huge pot of money and a blooming bad idea, it won't work. So I think it's those lovely moments where you've you you have to literally grin and bear through those and believe you have to believe like there's been loads of times I've gone to bed and I won't lie. I've lied. To them. It's what I call um, ceiling searching, where your eyes dart to every single corner of the room, frenetic. For hours and hours, and uh, there's been nights I've not slept. There's been nights I felt physically sick about the responsibility of of employing people. And I think when this happened, we'd just taken on two more people. You know, we've got a we've got a big team now, but another two people that had left their jobs, which were secure, to come to me. And I know it wasn't my fault, but actually, as a business owner, it's absolutely your responsibility to make sure you can pay wages at the end of the month. I think the other thing that's always struck me is, is as a business owner, you can't really ever tell anybody the fears that you have. You can tell your inner self and maybe your partner if you're lucky enough. But actually, if you say to the board, Oh, this is going to be touch and go, That you've lost all confidence in the board, and you can't ever say to your employees because they'll just go look for another job. So there's a certain element that you kind of almost have to carry yourself. And I I think that's why most people who run businesses and are entrepreneurs are just super optimistic because I think if you didn't believe and you didn't really believe, you you just get eaten up in, in the concern and the fear and the worry. So I think, yes, businesses do explode, but only because that money comes at the right pivotal moment. And interestingly, though, from a perspective of which is easier, I would always always go private investment. I would never, ever do a crowdfund again. It was the hardest thing I've ever done.
1: You had to obviously have an MVP to a certain level in terms of you had to show somebody something that was working, even if it wasn't necessarily what the finished product would be. That requires investment up front. That's why you liquidated assets to a certain extent that you owned. If I haven't got the money or the ability to do that, how do I get a business off the ground?
0: If you aren't prepared to put your own money in to start with, no matter how you get it, then I would never invest. So it's what they call skin in the game. If you go to somebody else and you ask them for their money and you haven't sold everything possible yourself, why would anybody else? Why would anybody else ever give you something you weren't prepared to risk yourself? And I I hear so many entrepreneurs and so many people say, I'm going to set this business up. I won't put any money in it myself. Because why? If you believed in it, why would you give a percentage away? Why wouldn't you hold on to 100 percent? And, you know, I've listened to some amazing podcasts with Dyson speaking where he gave up percentage of his first business. But he owns 100 percent of Dyson because he believed in it so much and he put everything on the line. And I think for me, I believed in this. But I used to go shopping with the girls. I've got two children, 12 and 9. I used to go shopping with them and they pick biscuits up and they say, can I have these? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, pop them in the trolley. And all of a sudden, I started out to say, "Well, which ones are on offer? What can we have?" And it was the it was the most important thing, I think, because although I'd set up startups for Royal mail, I'd done it with a budget, I'd done it with a brand behind me. And when and you do it, money. absolutely, it wasn't your money. absolutely, when you have that skin in the game, when it hurts you, when something goes wrong, you physically feel pain. You 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 know you 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 metaphorically bleed with that business. That's really important because it makes you careful with the decisions. It makes you contemplate what you need to do and every small business owner has to think, think again and
1: think once more. And looking back, can you actually, can you be born an entrepreneur or do you learn being an entrepreneur? What does that look like? Because you worked in a corporate world for nearly 20 years and then became an entrepreneur. Did you learn it? One of the
0: phrases when we ran the sales is, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than seek permission. Now,
1: you're not the first person to say that. Though, yeah. You know, <laughs> do first apologise later. I yeah, totally uh,
0: absolutely. And and for us at Raw Mail, there was a bit where we were trying to win new business. And obviously we had to work 100% within the compliance. But sometimes when campaigns were slow off the ground, we would need to just take it out there and, and put it in front of customers because you, know, you, you had to have something to talk about. I think once we'd left that... And once once I'd started to move into my own kind of business environment that I started to realize, actually, it's it's the way your mind works. And I, I think it's about risk. So I am totally risk adverse. I'm happy to take the risk. I need to make sure it's a concentrated, balanced risk. I can't. I'm not just a going. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Let, let, you know, don't worry. It is measured, but only financially. So personal risk is absolutely fine. I'm quite happy to throw myself out of a plane or do anything like life's too short. See,
1: I wouldn't do that. I just wouldn't chuck myself out of a plane or do a bungee jump, but I would do... You know, I'd, I'd invest in something or do something along those lines. Yes. But I wouldn't put myself on the line in that way.
0: The biggest thing for me is never, ever say, I bet you can't, because, oh, oh, hold on and let me go and give it a go <laughs> just to see if I can. So, yeah, I have some friends which manipulate this brilliantly now. So I have to watch them a little bit. <laughs> I will absolutely take the risk, but as long as it's based on some form of insight, as long as it's not just a gut feeling. So we touched earlier briefly about the magazine. That was a gut. You know, I got my OBE. I was passionate about helping women in business. I really wanted to. to drive that forward and all of a sudden I had an opportunity to become part of the magazine you know key women in business and to run it and and I I didn't look at the time at how hard magazines were how many were going out of business every day what the actual profit and loss was on your average magazine what advertising budget was going I didn't do any of that I was led purely by my gut by passion I'd left Royal Mail Dice Matrix was going and this was something we could take on as an alternative and I sort of thought oh do you know what why not and actually that why not is a huge of money it's a it's a time thief so the one thing you can never ever outsource is your own personal
1: time the big question and the final question in in this podcast and thanks for joining us is would you rather have a six-figure salary and have the security of a corporate lifestyle or would you rather take a risk and have i suppose the ability to be your own boss and be an entrepreneur take a risk
0: Every time. Take a risk every every time. time. Why? The adrenaline, the enjoyment, the satisfaction of when something goes right. The ability to be able to make decisions and drive those decisions through from concept through to conclusion is powerful. But actually, when you run an organisation with the ability to want to make money and to grow that organisation, it becomes all consuming. And it is every ounce of my fabric. It is every minute of every day. But I think ultimately it's the opportunity. What if I really make this work? And what if I can look back in a couple of years time and say... Blooming good success that was,
1: Susanna. Thank you so much for joining me. We could have carried on for hours to learn more about Susanna, the Direct Selling Association UK, Pitch DMM, or indeed anything else that she's been involved in. Head over to Susanna's LinkedIn by simply searching Susanna Schofield OBE. Join me next week where we'll be discussing more about the failures, mistakes, passion, and persistence with another inspiring owner entrepreneur who is currently in business. Thanks once again for listening. Take care. If you've enjoyed this program, then please show your support by subscribing via Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast streaming services. Why not share it with at least three friends? And of course, make sure you tune in next week. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Contact me via Twitter at OliverBruce_Biz underscore biz or via LinkedIn at OliverBruceOnline. Thank you. Successes In The Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community. A programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain.